Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that Really Good Enough Parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. this episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast, I am bringing you something a little different. As with many of my guests and episodes, I was guided to this next guest through serendipity. I had met Amanda Quick through her mother, a therapist and colleague in the marriage and family therapy world. A number of years ago, Amanda had offered her volunteer IT services to the nonprofit adoption agency that I was running at the time. So I got to know Amanda over our remote Zoom tech support calls. She was always on time, she was always really calm and helpful and super pleasant and just a lovely person to work with. From time to time, I'd hear one of her children in the background because she was working from home, or she'd explain a scheduling issue relating to needing to take care of one of her sons. Only once during our two plus year work together did she allude to an issue with the boy's father indicating that there was something challenging going on, but she didn't say anything else about it. Point is that she was a consummate professional, even while dealing with unbelievable challenges uh, at home and in her personal life. A year or more after my last contact with Amanda, I ran into her mother at a therapist gathering. And I asked about Amanda, and her mother shared the story that you are about to hear. As her mother told me the story, I knew I wanted to share it. So I texted Amanda that evening and she agreed to be interviewed for this episode of A Really Good Enough Parent podcast. Unfortunately, the quality of this episode is a little bit wonky. Uh, The last minute I recorded in a makeshift studio in my basement and the recording cut out halfway through. So I'm using the backup audio tracks. I probably shouldn't be sharing that with you, but if you're like me, I spend a lot of time wondering about how the podcast sausages really get made. So there you have it. If you're interested in Amanda and her story, I encourage you to look her up, to buy her book, to follow her wherever you can on social. And then once her podcast gets released, um, try and find that and listen to that because I'm sure it'll be really interesting. This woman is a powerhouse. She is a true mama bear. She's a force of nature. And of course, she is the epitome of a really good enough parent. So with that, up next on a really good enough parent podcast, I am really happy to share with you my friend, Amanda Quick. To a really good enough parent podcast. I always say that I'm excited to have my next guest and this time is no different. I am super excited 
uh, to have Amanda on today. I have known Amanda for a number of years. She came to me through her mother, who's a family friend, and she was really helpful to my adoption agency for many years as a, a brilliant tech support person. I had no idea while we were working together throughout those years that there was this whole other interest side to Amanda. I had glimpses of her depth and her spirituality and her intensity and brilliance uh, while we were doing tech, which is kind of hard to imagine, I know, but that tells you a lot about what lies beneath the, the surface with Amanda. Um, but just the other day, I learned this this whole other fascinating side to her, and I was quick to then, oh, that was a pun, not intended, that'll be the last one. I was quick to then contact her and um, <laughs> ask her if she'd be on the podcast. And what I learned, uh, you will soon learn also, and that is an amazing story. So thank you for making the time, Amanda. It's really nice to see you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So let's start at, I mean, I kind of want to jump to the end for a minute and then maybe back up. But the reason I wanted to have you on was because you've just published a book. Yes. And, um, and all that sort of goes along with that. So are you comfortable sharing? Absolutely. Um, the, the name of the book and sort of start, let's start with the book and then we can go backwards from there. Yep. So for those of you who see video, uh, I'm showing the book cover. It is called The Sex Trafficker's Wife, A Story of Truth, Faith, and Trust in Self. And it is available on Amazon and all the platforms, uh, including audiobook, which was a whole ordeal to record, but it's there. And uh, yeah, it became a number one bestseller, bestseller in about a month, and it's just been a whirlwind since, since I released it. So the story begins in 2016. I, at the time, was a full-time stay-at-home parent. I had very young children. They were one, four, and almost six at the time. And my then-husband and their father just didn't come home one night, and I couldn't find him. And at about five o'clock in the morning, I did finally find him after calling the non-emergency dispatch line and then transferring me over to the jail, in which the jail tells me that, yes, we have him, and he's been arrested for attempted human trafficking with a $250,000 bond. And I didn't even know what that meant. Prior to that, right, because prior to that, you had no, no indication that he was anything other than a normal, loving husband? Correct. I had no clue. Not a hint. And obviously, hindsight, twenty twenty, and there were a multitude of red flags that I didn't see at the time. But at that point in time, I truly believed that he was a good man, a good father, and it made no sense to me. I thought it was a mistake. I thought somebody had stolen his wallet and he was actually dead in a ditch. Like that made more sense to me than this, this charge. And I had no idea what, what human trafficking meant. I, I had, you know, shipping containers and crossing borders in my mind. And we were in a small Colorado town that didn't make any sense. And so I did what I, the way that I operate is if somebody who I care about is in trouble, I go help them and I figure it out and we make a plan. And so I, I basically operated in fight mode from then. And it was, okay, let's figure this out. What, what happened? How can I help? We get lawyers. How do I get him out? And all I could think about was I need to protect my family including my children. And I believed that in order to protect them, they needed their father in their life. And so I had to help him get out of this because he was a good man. This didn't make sense. And backing up, you had been married for how many years and you had three young boys, right? Correct. We had been married for six years at the time. Uh, and yes, the, the children were one, four, and almost six. And so I you know, and we've been together for probably nine, almost 10 years at the time. So I, I thought I knew him. I thought I knew everything about him. And I, and I believed that he was a, 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 who I thought he was and a good person. And there was nothing about any of this that made sense to me. Okay. So share with us and how you started to, um, what happened after you started to throw your full energy into it. And to those who don't know you, um, you're somebody who can accomplish great things in a short time. From what I've learned, yes. you sort of tackle something and you become the authority on it and you don't until you've achieved your goal. Pretty much. Um, and I treated, yeah. I treated this the same. And so I uh, got lawyers, got, you know, investments sold and got money and it was basically like, let's get him out. Let's get him help. Let's figure out what actually happened. 
And, you know, so within a couple of days, he, he, I did, was able to release him from jail and paid the bond. And it was at that point in time that I started to hear his side of the story because you don't, all I knew is what the, you know, what he was arrested for. I didn't have any details after, before that. And his side of the story was very different. And so what this was, was a sting operation. It was a sting operation that was put by Homeland Security and the local police department to basically try to catch people trying to have sex with children. And so they offered an 11 and 14 year old, and he was one of the defendants that showed up. And so according to him, what he was doing was meeting adult escorts. And so he was admitting to meeting adult escorts, but said when they offered kids, he didn't think it was real. And he was just trying to figure out who to report it to. That was his story. And how to report. So he claimed he was the good guy yes. who was going to see, oh my gosh, there are kids in trouble. Yes. Someone's offering me kids. I need to be the hero to go save the kids from whoever is trafficking them. Correct. Correct. But he was scared that he was going to be admitting to uh, adult solicitation. And so he he couldn't report it unless he was sure. And obviously this was also a shock to me. He was admitting to soliciting adults our entire marriage. And he was very flippant about it. It was... I. He'd been doing this since forever. And that was news to me. Um, I had three kids with the man. I didn't know this. Um, and yet he was in trouble for, you know, human trafficking and indeterminate life sentence. And so I was also scared for him. And I was scared for, the, for my children to not have a dad in their lives. And okay, we've clearly got addiction issues. We've got stuff to deal with. But I couldn't even process. When he told me that, I didn't have an emotional reaction. I just, okay. And move on really i couldn't i couldn't even think about it yet because we were in we were in the face of such scary things so how long did that denial for you go on or that um fight mode probably a full year and a half truthfully um it it took about a year for his criminal trial to be over at six six months nine months somewhere in there and once that was over he was offered a plea deal so most people also don't understand that Middle-class white men do not go to prison for trying to have sex with children. It is almost always pled out. And he got a deal for zero jail time and only was required to do four years of probation. So he accepted that deal. And I was upset by that. I was, I thought, I mean, if you're innocent, you should fight it. But he couldn't, he, you know, he can't turn down a deal like that. And so he pled guilty to uh, the, the final charge was attempted solicitation of a minor was the final uh, pled guilty charge and um, agreed to four years probation. They have to go through sex offender treatment. They are on sex offender probation, which is different probation than regular probation. They are more monitored. They have curfews, that, that kind of thing. And after all of that, I he had also lost his job. And so prior to that, he was the financial provider for the entire family as well. I'd been a stay-at-home parent and I hadn't worked in six years. And the realization that I was going to need to go back to work, I, I could no longer depend on him because his mental health after the criminal case was only deteriorating. He couldn't focus. He couldn't do anything. And truthfully, he had lost his primary way of dealing with his with his addiction at that point because he could no longer go out soliciting. And I didn't understand any of that at the time either. It was just, I've got, a, I've got another project. I've got to go find a job. I've got to figure out how to solve the income for the family. And so at that point, I went back to work. And going back to work, going back to IT work, which is what I had done prior, uh, was the first time that I started to come out of this bubble that had been formed. And the trauma bond that was formed between me and my husband going through the criminal trial is something that not many people can understand because they think, you know, your husband's arrested for these horrible things and why don't you kick him to the curb and leave? But nobody could understand what I was going through except my husband, even though he was the one who caused it. And I was isolated myself from everybody. There was articles in the paper, people who wanted to talk to me, they wanted more information and I, I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to be tied up into it, but I also was completely alone. And even my mom tried to reach out to me and I still felt judgment from her. I still felt this, this belief that, I didn't have to stay from her. And as far as I could see, yes, I did because my kids needed their father because how dare she tell me that my kids don't when she took my dad away from me. And so my, 
own childhood wounding was coming to the surface really, really loudly because my parents got divorced when I was nine and I almost never saw my dad after that. And so that's an important point to make for those listening is that we talk about the importance of how we're raised, how we're raised up influences the partners we seek out, the kinds of marriages we have and how we raise our children. Um, and maybe we can touch more on that later, but that's an important detail. What you're sharing is that you um, lost your father to divorce when you were nine. And even whether or not he was, I'm using air quotes, a good guy, whether or not he was, you know, tried to be there for you, the impact on the child brain is this person abandoned me. I want this person. Yes. We don't understand the, the details of personality or commitment or attachment. We just feel a loss and we go out and seek to recreate or to, to make up for that. Yes. Exactly. And, and I did exactly that. And I did it all through my teenage years and I did it in all the relationships and I sought out men who would, would validate my, me. And also, usually the men I sought out were also emotionally unavailable, just as my father was. And I was, I was trying on some sense to recreate that and, and have that relationship. And, you know, in my teenage years, when I did, when I did speak to my dad, he also always blamed my mom because, you know, it was all her fault. And so he was the victim to the situation and my mom tried to protect me from all of the details. And so I didn't even really know her side of the story yet, not in, in enough detail to understand. And so as a teenager, I was very angry with my mom and I left the, at 17. I didn't, didn't have that relationship with her anymore. And so as she's trying to talk to me as I'm going through this and try to tell me that, you know, I can, I can leave Colorado and I can move closer to my sister and I can have, you know, family support. It was, how dare you? How dare you put that on me when you took my dad away from, from me? I'm not going to do that. Right. And that. And so for parents, I just want to say that, you know, this is, there's so much to this because we try to choose a good partner, but if we're choosing a partner for life and we intend to have kids knowing how we were raised and processing some of that in therapy and getting clear on that, I think is super important not to blame your mom um, you know, for the bad choice she made. Um, but I think what we're seeing here is the high potency of, um, family history replaying, yes, replaying, exactly. replaying. Uh, and it was, it was huge. And so, um, you know, I ran with that story for a long time. So even as I went back to work and I started to realize I was really actually not okay being in the marriage anymore. And I started to finally process that my husband had admitted to cheating on me for 50 plus times through our marriage. And I started to realize I couldn't stay in the relationship. I still was running this, but my kids need their dad and he's still a good father and he's got some issues, but he's still a safe parent. And I could not let that one go for another couple of years because it just, I, I, I was so sure that I had chosen somebody, you know, we believe what we believe and everything in our experience only helps validate those beliefs so that that's all we are willing to see. Um, and, yeah. you know, as we went through out and eventually I decided I can no longer be with him. He also pushed on all of those insecurities and he, you know, as we were separating, he, he said, you know, let's stay in the same house together and let's, you know, be weird normal. And he was continuing to try to keep access to me and the kids, probably in large part because of his own fear, but also pulling on all of my, I don't want to, I don't want to be the cause of the family ripping apart because I took all of that weight and that burden on myself. And I think a lot of women do this, especially, but not just women, but we are kind of conditioned to believe that it's our job to keep the family together. It's our job to make sure that everybody's taken care of, that everybody has what they need, and if the family was going to fall apart, it was somehow going to be my fault. And I didn't want that. And so uh, yeah. even as we were separating and I even started dating for a little while, we were living together. And uh, throughout my, my work and my job, uh, things started to get better. I actually got promoted and I realized I was going to be the person I was dating's boss. So I made the choice to break up with him. And kind of like deal with, okay, this weird normal can't last. Things are getting weird. I started to finally see the smallest bits of the manipulation coming through. 
but I was mostly just, I just thought he was a jerk. I didn't really think he was nefarious or, or bad. It was just, it was just not, not very nice. And that, that was my problem. That wasn't the kid's problem. And that's kind of how I saw it is I have to deal with this, but you know, he loves his kid. They love him. I just have to deal with it. And he responded by eventually actually filing for divorce himself because I didn't want to get back together. And so that was his way to try to force it and try to say, okay, you don't want to be together. Well, let's get the courts involved, which only angered me more because how dare he try to now essentially kick me out of the house and claim he's the primary parent after I supported him through this criminal trial. That was his play. And so then the divorce proceeding started. So this, he was arrested in April of 2016. He filed for divorce in October of 2018. So this is like two and a half years later. And yeah, you know, that's when things started to get really, really challenging because now the kids were going back and forth between households over four times a week. They, the, the transitions between households was very challenging. We parented very differently. And parallel parenting is, is even harder when you've got young children because the expectations are so different. The, they were basically going through screen and sugar withdrawals every time they would come over to my house. And all I felt like I was living in a war zone and having to hold the boundaries because there weren't, there weren't any. And I started to see how bad his mental health was. I started to see the alienating behavior. It was all my fault. Just, just as from my dad's perspective, the divorce was my mom's fault. Everything in, in this divorce was my fault because I chose not to forgive him because I couldn't let go of it. So that's why the family can't stay together. And my children would ask me, why won't you forgive daddy? And, you know, this was, this was impacting my relationship with them. And, you know, I was the stay-at-home mom. I breastfed and co-slept and had this amazing, beautiful relationship with my children. And all of a sudden it was just gone. And they were angry with me. And they were fighting with me. And it got to the point where they were physically violent to even come to my house. And they didn't want to be around me anymore because of what was being said. Right. So he was he was doing the classic throw you under the yeah. bus to them, yeah. which is the number one no-no. And he was also giving them Disneyland dad yeah. uh, 24-7, right? So when they were with him, unlimited screen time, sugar, whatever they wanted. And you were trying to uh, keep some sense of... Correct normalcy and health for them. Okay. Got it. And, you know, I also had a full-time job and needed, you know, boundaries and structure in order to survive. And he was still not working. And so it was free for all. Um, and then, uh, you know, we had gotten a parental rights evaluator involved now in Colorado. It's, that's what it's called. Every state has a different version of this where it's a third party assigned to the case to help evaluate the, you know, the needs of the children, the, the people involved, that kind of a thing. And it's a very expensive evaluation, but I felt it very necessary to, to do this because I didn't really know what we were dealing with. And I wanted full psychological evaluations. And some part of me knew there was more under the surface, but I just, I didn't have the words, the language for it. And, you know, the, his prior criminal conviction was actually irrelevant in the divorce case because of his constitutional right to parent. And because the state of Colorado had a precedent that said a sex offense doesn't automatically remove your right to parent, it, it, it wasn't, it was not a factor unless I could prove that he was in danger. These children were in danger specifically. Okay. Let's just stop there. Cause that detail, when I heard it the other day, blew my yep. mind. So you can be accused of child sex trafficking. You can be a, an admitted sex offender Correct. and you can still receive in the state of Colorado custody of your children. 100%, yes. And it is actually a new precedent that was set in 2014 in a Supreme Court in, in Colorado that says that a sex offense does not remove your right to parent and that you have a constitutional right to familial association is how it's written. And so therefore, unless the person can prove that your specific children are in danger from you, it does not affect your constitutional right to parent. And so because his kids were not the defendants in his criminal case, people look at your own children differently than other children. And that, that, that I know, but the truth is I, I like speechless. Yeah. The truth is that's not just Colorado. Many States have this type of rule. And I know that's a shocker to a lot of people, 
not only do do sex offenders not go to jail, but they are fully capable of and, and have the right to parent their children. And so none of these kids okay. are looked at and they're, it just, they, it's just swept away. And so I had to get, uh, you know, the evaluators involved. I had to get legal professionals involved and I still didn't really know what I was dealing with. I still had this somewhat belief that we were safe-ish and okay, he was in therapy, he was needing to deal with his stuff, but I didn't see the danger yet. Uh, the evaluator uh, wrote a report that said that essentially we should have 50-50 with some considerations for his uh, probation restrictions because what he wasn't allowed was to be around other children because the probation can, can determine that. They just couldn't take away his access to his own children. So he okay, and that right there, the hypocrisy of that is mind-numbing. It is. That you can't be around any other children unsupervised, I assume, Correct. yet you can raise, groom, yes. mess up your own children yeah. without anyone. Okay, yes. yeah. So, I, I don't know how we, I'm so curious to know the thinking behind that. So the, uh, he can't go to, he couldn't go to schools, activities, anything of the sort. And so I, that was still all on me. And so her recommendation to the court was essentially a 50-50 arrangement with some of those kind of considerations. And the um, psyche eval showed me to be psychologically normal, which, you know, it's a great, great thing to hear from professionals, but that he had some personality disorders. He had major depression, anxiety, he had dependent personality disorder. And so what I was starting to see was that he was becoming dependent upon his children to meet his mental and emotional needs. And that's part of why he was you know, using them to process the relationship separation. And that's why he was telling them things that weren't appropriate to tell young children about breaking up with your spouse. And so we actually tried to settle at first because I didn't know what else to do. The, this is what the court was recommending. And he ignored the settlement. And during the period of time he ignored the settlement, which was about a month and a half, things got really scary. And the bottom dropped out in my world again. And my middle child, who was seven at the time, says to me out of nowhere, sometimes I suck on daddy's fingers. And I just didn't even know what to say because I started to go, holy crap, what else is going on in that house? This is not okay. They not just alienating behavior, but he is starting to groom them now. And my middle child is the most emotionally sensitive. He is the most empathetic. He's the one who doesn't want to see daddy get in more trouble, who, you know, daddy says he's lonely when we're not here. And so we need to be around him. And I just, I started to see this play out and I was absolutely terrified. And then of course it's flashing in front of my face. This is the man who was arrested for trying to have sex with 11, 14 year old. So hello. Uh, and yet there was at the time, not a whole lot I could do about it because the court had just made a recommendation that we share parenting time. And anybody who's ever been in a high-conflict divorce knows that if you make new accusations in the middle of a high-conflict divorce, you get to be looked like the one who's the alienating parent. And so we had to tread very carefully. So I called their therapist. I asked a bunch of questions. She said, ask him to show you what that means. And so I did. I asked him to show me what that meant. And he showed me exactly what it meant with, with his thumb. And it was as, as bad as I thought. And I called the therapist back and she said, well, if he had done that with me, I would have had to report it to Child Protective Services. And so with that, my lawyer said it was safe to report it because somebody else was telling me that was the appropriate thing to do. So I reported it to CPS and they came over and interviewed my child in my house with him hiding under the table, terrified of the man, point blank, asking if that's a game he still played with his father. My kid was so scared of the guy. I was like, this is how we interview children. Are you, are you kidding me? Um, and then he left and said, okay, we'll go talk to dad. And probation polygraphed him and cleared him. And so that was it. Case closed. And I sat here going, oh my God, what? I don't know what to do. Because the behavior also started to get worse with my middle child. He was seven. He was now peeing himself in school. He was taking a chopstick to the crotch of a doll in the middle of therapy he was coming on to me. If I tried to watch a movie, he would try to climb in my lap and try to kiss on me. Like I knew there was more going on here. And I was really scared for what this was, what was going to happen. And I felt like there was nothing I could do. This was my rock bottom point to realize that I supported a man. I gave and invited him back into our home. I allowed 
him to, you know, regain his parenting time after after he pled guilty to attempted solicitation of a minor. And yet it seemed like I couldn't undo it. Like I had I, the support that I had given for him meant that I deemed him safe back when, you know, I had no idea what was actually going on. And yet now now my kids are in actual danger and I have to figure out how to prove it before things get worse. Because the other thing about the court system, both criminal and family court, is that it's not protective. We have this idea that the courts are supposed to protect us or the police system is supposed to protect us. But the court system is set up to only be punitive, which means something has to happen. Something bad enough has Mm -hmm. to happen that you can prove in a court of law before they will step in. And so how bad did it have to get? And I was not really okay with going down that path either. These were my children and I was still having to give them over to him four times a week. And my mental health at this point was not doing good. I wasn't sleeping. I was working full time. I was trying to survive. And I had been diagnosed with PTSD at this point. The anxiety attacks were regular. Every interaction with him became high conflict. There was actual hostage situations going on between transferring children because he wanted to negotiate parenting time and I just wanted to proceed as we agreed and not impact them any further. And things were just escalating. And I got to the point where I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I could do. It felt like I was completely helpless. And so I was in therapy at the time. And my mental health regular therapist says to me as I'm leaving the office one day, have you ever thought about seeing a psychic? Huh? What? (laughs) What are you talking about? And I was completely agnostic. My mom is very spiritual and I rejected all of her spirituality because I rejected all of that connection for so long. And religion did never, never worked for me. And so I just kind of stayed agnostic and, and stayed away from it all. And I in my mind, like fortune teller, you, what? <laughs> and is that even real? Are the, the people who actually can do this? Like, huh? And she says, yeah, no, I, I know somebody who's, who's good. I said, you know what? I'm at my wit's end. I will try anything. I will throw money at this. Got nothing, got to, nothing lose. to lose. Here, right? Right. <laughs> and so I go see this lady and I walk into her office. There's crystals and deities and all kinds of stuff everywhere. And she's talking to me about her gift and the way she's able to see angels. And I'm just kind of, okay, let's, let's see where this goes. And she starts telling me that this, this situation is the loudest karmic echo that she has seen in, in years. And I still, I don't know what she's talking about exactly, but she starts telling me a story about a past life of mine 500 years ago in the South of France. And I'm married to somebody named Jean Charles. My husband at the time's name was Charlie. So I'm like, okay, I'm listening about how, you know, things were okay-ish until there was kids. And in this life, he, his addiction was alcohol and he was physically violent, but the energy underlying was the same. And I stepped in and things got worse with the kids because I would try to protect them and step in away and that would anger him. And this life ended with me being beaten to death and thrown down the stairs. And as she's telling me this, my whole body starts to have these like goosebumps and this, this response and this fear rises in me. And I'm, I'm starting to understand that the reason I'm so scared of him and the reason that I took so long to leave and that, that all of this was happening was because I was still holding on to fear from not this life because I was terrified of him. I was terrified to confront him, to talk to him. Every single interaction sent me into a panic, but he'd never laid a hand on me. He was emotionally and mentally manipulative, absolutely, but I didn't get why he was so scared of him. And so I started to see it, I started to understand it. She starts telling me the reasons I stayed in that life were all the same reasons I stayed in this life. Like she's, she's in my head. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I'm listening, lady. (laughs) And she tells me, the reason you're sitting in this chair, the reason your angels made this appointment for you and allowed you to sit in this chair is because you need to make a choice. I was like, what do you mean? I've made a choice. I'm doing all the things. She says, no, you still haven't made a choice. You haven't chosen to be done with him once and for all. And in that moment, I got it. I saw that there was a part of me that was still holding on to this belief that he would get help that there was some possibility of the kids having a father in their lives because of my own my own childhood trauma, that I didn't want any of this. So I was still holding on to this belief that maybe it wasn't as bad as I was thinking. Maybe there was another explanation. I still didn't want to believe any of it really could be true. And by doing that, I wasn't fully allowing myself to choose to be 100% done with him once and for all and to find the safety and security that me and the kids needed. 
And I, and I saw that even as uncomfortable as it was to see that I was still holding on to that. I was still holding hope that, that maybe, maybe I was wrong. And that by doing that, it was, I wasn't choosing. And so I saw it, I saw it right there. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. (laughs) And she said, okay, good. I can help you now. And what she said was there was people who could help me and there was more I could do. And I just needed to keep going. I needed to keep pushing. I needed to keep asking because there was more I could find and more evidence that I could gather. And she confirmed for me that he was not interested in rehabilitating. He wasn't interested in dealing with his own lifetimes of trauma and that his the lifetimes of trauma had created this for him, but he was just digging his hole deeper. And so she gave me a bunch of strategies, a bunch of information to go and try. And I left that office a, a different person. It was, I had this renowned all right, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this and I'm not going to stop until I do. And mm. it's not hard for me to get there, but you know, when you're at your rock bottom and you think there's nothing you can do, it took somebody telling me, no, no, there's more for me to get it. And I went back to work that day right. and the a person in my office said, you know, I have an uncle who works for ICE. I'm going to call him. I said, oh, okay. And she calls him and they put me in touch with Homeland Security, who puts me in touch with the arresting officer that put the cuffs back on him. And they remembered him very clearly. And they vowed to help me. The local police department also, who put the cuffs on him back in 2016, also agreed to help me. They opened, reopened the CPS case. They did an actual forensic interview on my son. Too much time had passed. It didn't go anywhere. But they wouldn't, they weren't going to stop either. So just for people who are, you know, God forbid, in a similar situation or ever need. So the case had been closed. Yes. Right. Uh, But you were able to call these fairly high placed departments, ICE, Office of Homeland Security, et cetera, and say, hey, I think there's more to this. You guys, with all due respect, may have missed something. And that was enough to get them to say, okay, let's having do the it. police officer reopen the case after knowing him was the actual uh, what was enough. My, I, when I tried to call CPS, they they didn't reopen it, but having the police officer do it was the thing. And so having a trusted third party actually get involved was was how I was able to get the case reopened. Um, and. You know, these are people who remembered the, the interaction with him and they, they knew. And honestly, Homeland Security was appalled that we were never interviewed, that our house was never searched, that nobody ever actually took a look of the fact that he had children himself. They were completely appalled that somebody was arrested in a sting operation like this and that it was it was handled the way it was at the court level. And Homeland Security means international. Yes, correct. It's a federal organization, and they were part of the sting operation, and it was in conjunction with the local police department. And so they were... It's a, and Homeland Security because what was the international I don't know component? if it's international. Like, that's just, it's a federal organization that works with, with, okay. throughout, and, and I don't, there wasn't a specific international component other than they were part of the sting operation. Okay. Okay. Um, and so... You know, every what what ended up happening was every single idea that popped into my head at that point, I I ran with. So if I thought of somebody to call out of nowhere, I would call them and I say, this is what's happening. How can you help me? And every idea that they would have, I would run with every idea the next person would have, I would run with. And I broadened my my network of support. And so it was no longer just what my lawyers thought or what, you know, the my immediate therapist thought. It was what everybody I could think of and the connections that they, they knew. Because I had this realization that everybody knows somebody. And I called my realtor, for example. And I said, any ideas? You've been in town long. Do you know anybody? And she said, you know, I would call the district attorney. I called the district attorney. And the district attorney said, there's not really much I can do at this point. But have you, do you, have you seen the case file, the original case file? Because I can get that for you. I said, you know what? I have not. Because this is the other thing. People don't realize the criminal case files are not shared with the family. They keep all of that in case it goes to trial. It stays sealed. And until somebody higher up can take out the identifying information and redact the pieces that aren't shareable, then you can't see it. And once that happens, it becomes public record. And so he said, I, I can do that for you. I can redact what needs to be taken out and then I can I can release it to you as public record. And I said, fantastic. And so a couple of weeks later in my email comes the case file. And this is the time I get to truly see the truth of what happened. And I get to see the text transcript between him and the undercover agents. And any final questions I had about whether this was real or not to him were answered because I 100% understood that this not only was real to him, but it wasn't the first time. 
and I, and I got it. And, you know, whether I would have been able to see that four years before that, I don't know, but I, but I saw it then. And, you know, and so I was processing, not now just realizing that he's a danger, but I was getting all of the details. And so the evidence pile started to stack. I started recording the conversations with my children. I started to read them books about body safety and keeping bodies safe and, and what private parts are need to stay private and who, who do they go to if they're uncomfortable. I got more information. I found out that, you know, I was reading a, a book that uh, talked about, you know, what the red flags are. And my son stops me and says, oh, but it's okay if it's animated, right? And so I got all of that evidence. I got all of that evidence that, you know, my son's bedroom had been moved and that my, uh, that his dad was climbing into bed in his bed in the middle of the night. All of that was recorded. And I just got stacks and stacks of evidence. And at the end of when we were actually going to trial, because our court date, I went to the psychic in January of 2020 and our court date was scheduled in February of 2020. And so I didn't have very much time, but I was just full throttle. Everything I could do. My, my evidence binder was three inches thick of, of data compared to his couple of stapled pieces of paper. And the, the evaluator's reports, because there was another update done to the reports, was a one-inch binder. And so she had two reports now for the court, the second of which uh, recommended much less time and me to have full decision-making because of the state of his mental health. And so we went to court on February 28th of 2020 to have the fight of my life. And we interviewed the evaluator. We interviewed all of his probation officers and therapists. The probation officer and therapist did not even hold him to their own terms and conditions of probation because he paid the probation bill. And they never searched his home. They never checked in with him because he paid the probation bill. And so we were able to prove that in court. The only witness that certified as expert, which is it's a very important uh, distinction in the court cases, was the evaluator herself. And everything that couldn't come through any of her reports came through me. So all of the stuff with my son and what he had said, even though hearsay, the judge was very interested in my state of mind and why I was proceeding as I was. And so we set our piece. And a few days later, the judge, who was appalled that he had been even sleeping with them, finally made the final order. And the final order was that all... Um, all overnights were immediately removed. He was only allowed a couple of afternoons a week, and he was going to have six weeks to comply with a whole long list of evaluations and more family therapy and a bunch of, and to get a job and a bunch of other things. And if he didn't comply within those six weeks, he was only going to have supervised visitation. And if he didn't comply over 120 days, that would be the permanent, permanent parenting plan. And if he did comply, then he could potentially have some time. So there was still an option at this point for him to have parenting time. Now, when I read that, I had an, I was pretty sure he was incapable of what they were asking because he had done nothing at that point. And I was right. Six weeks later, not a single thing had been done. No certificate of compliance was filed. Wow. And we have now not heard from him since April of 2020. Wow, exactly three, three plus years. And obviously we had no idea the pandemic was coming down, but my divorce was finalized two weeks before the pandemic shut the, the whole world down. And from a timing perspective, if you don't believe in divine timing, I sure do, because they were never quarantined with him. Mm-hmm. It, you know, made it what, however more challenging to even do the certificate of compliance at the time. And it just meant that it got to be over. Wow. Oh my gosh. Holy cow. I, I And I'm blown away because during that time when you were, you know, basically the fight of your life, as you say so modestly, you were working with me in IT stuff remotely, and I had no idea that any of this was going on. You were the consummate professional. You showed up for our Zoom meetings. You helped me with my Manini Microsoft challenges uh, and never any indication that this was going on for you. So I, I'm just, I'm so impressed and in awe and so much respect for how you carried on because my guess is that that persona, that ability to separate what needed to be done from living your life must have really yeah. helped your children because my guess is that you also showed up for your kids and kept things going in a way, didn't let them see what was happening, didn't let it show on your face, maintained routines and rituals yes. for them. Um, unbelievable. Wow. Okay. 
So what's next? <laughs> so obviously, you know, 2020 was what it was for everybody. <laughs> and, you know, people, when I look at, at that point in time, it was very challenging for a lot of families, but it was a huge relief for me. The kids all came home. My work went remote. I got a chance to heal with my kids again. You know, being home during the pandemic was a blessing. We got to have lunch together. We got to build structure. We got to play. We got to, I got to become their safe person again. And I'm immensely grateful for that time because I don't, I don't know how else we would have done it truthfully. Yeah. Wow. That, that forced isolation, I think for many families was a blessing because so much of the distraction of the world was shut out. And like you said, it is a real gift to be able to spend time with and get to know your children. And, you know, after my job went remote, there was a bunch of other things that happened and I eventually left that company and just kind of decided to explore. I I worked part-time here and there. I really wanted to understand more about spirituality. All of a sudden I had this new, uh, new connection and I wanted to learn more. And if, if she can talk to these other spirits, why can't I? And I, I set out to learn and to in, engross myself in everything I could because there was clearly more to this experience than, than I knew before. And I, I knew that this, this whole situation, it, it had to mean something. I didn't go through it for nothing. And so I, I, I needed to learn more about trauma and our bodies and and how all of it fits together and and what's the point of the experience and and how can I help other people? Because the other thing that was really loud is my divorce cost over $75,000 and I am a very privileged, educated white woman. And I had the ability to have the resources to have that fight. And there are so many people out there who do not and don't even have the, uh, not just the wherewithal, but the ability to start to have the fight. And those people are sharing custody with their abusers and their children's abusers. And what's unique about my story isn't the shocking part of it, but it's actually the outcome. It's the fact that I got out and I got out like I did. And so many people don't. And they're living my worst. Right. And like you said, you were able to pick up the phone and literally call anybody in town. Uh, People took your calls. People welcomed your calls and they shared their contacts with you, which for most underprivileged, marginalized people wouldn't even Begin and they, to they took my concerns seriously. You know, I, I, I had, I had clout from a social standpoint and and a financial standpoint, and so, you know, that was really loud to me that that I got out and so many people don't. And so, the idea of sharing custody with my abuser and my children's abuser just that it just makes me so angry. And that's what am I okay? What am I going to do about it? And it set off a fire in me to to learn more, to share more, to not hide from any of this and to release any parts of the shame, be any parts of the guilt that I was still holding so that I could publicly share my story, that I could invite people to recognize they do have a choice also and they need to make the choice. And then there are people who can help. And, and I would at some point like to establish myself as one of them. I I'm in the process of starting a nonprofit that will help people who are fighting for custody from their abusers and their children's abusers. I've published my book. I I just want to speak on stages. I'm going to start my own podcast where I talk about trauma and spirituality and everything in between, because the more people who know that they can choose to, and there is help out there, both energetically and physically, they just have to find it and they have to trust and they have to keep going the more people who can get out of these situations and the less shame will be held to the people who are still in them. Right. Wow. So you wrote the book um, and published it. I've just downloaded it and I'm very excited to listen to it. Um, Is it your voice reading it? Oh boy. Oh, that's exciting. So anyone who can do that or can buy it, um, I'll have that in the show notes also links to that. Um, and then uh, once your blog or once your podcast is up, we'll have that and your nonprofit. So what are you doing? All now? kinds of things. <laughs> yes. Can you share with us? So um, yeah. I was working uh, for myself, you know, kind of trying to get different different healing things off the ground and moved around a couple of times. We left Colorado in 2021. I got permission from the court. He didn't even respond to that motion. And so I was able to leave Colorado and start over. I ended up meeting a man through some of this spiritual journey and he's the complete opposite of my my ex in so many ways and we were now remarried and my kids have a stepdad which is amazing because they now have a male role model who gets to talk about you know emotional maturity and be that example 
And um, I've actually, we've just moved again and I just started a new role. I'm, I'm back in IT doing, I'm a director of IT now for a consulting firm. And at the same time, I'm not stopping all of the rest of the, the sharing and the podcasting and everything else I'm doing. And my, my big dreams are to really speak on stage about this and to get in front of people making decisions about trauma-informed practices in the legal system. Because the fact that at my expense, I had to teach the, every single judge and jury I came across what trauma looks like to me is unacceptable. This is, this is, we are all in human bodies. We react to trauma in fairly standard ways and treated like we're the problem is the problem. And I want to get in front of those people and have those conversations and use the shock of my story for exactly what it was intended and actually help people see what can happen and what does happen in, in the situation. Because like, just like you were surprised, he was arrested for what? And still it took what? <laughs> you know, that's the reality of the system we're living in. And it's not just Colorado. It's, yeah. it's all of the states have very little protection for those who need it. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, your boys are doing, you would say, pretty well now. They are, they are, they're now, they're 8, 11, and 13, believe it or not, we've got, we've got teenagers here, and uh, they are, you know, it, it, stuff comes up, they had to process the loss of a parent, which is its own loss in itself, and, you know, through the learnings of, you know, what, what my mom went through, I've made it a very important thing to have age-appropriate, but truthful conversations with them about what happened. And those conversations have evolved as they have grown and have more understanding of, of what sex is and what consent is and what all of those pieces are, because I don't ever want to hide the truth from them. I would way rather they hear it from me instead of somebody Googling their father on the internet. And so I've been really open with them about my own healing journey, the things that they may process. And we talk about energy in our bodies and we talk about the way we're feeling and how it's affecting us physically. And we talk about all of that stuff really openly, especially with my middle child, but all of them. And, you know, we, we do body work to help release, release the, the pains and, and everything as it starts to come up gets an open conversation. And so in my mind, I'm trying to do everything possible to help set them up so that they have not just the emotional maturity, but the, the awareness as they step into the world of, of what trauma looks like and, and, and can come at it from a, a, a more healed and a more open perspective because, you know, they too went through the experience. They were just much younger and without all of the same perspective that I did. Yeah. I, I want to take the opportunity to share for parents who are listening um, a couple of things here real quick. So number one, your mom is a therapist. She was a therapist when you were young also. She's always been a therapist. So you were raised by a therapist. Is that correct? That is yeah. correct. Okay. And and I know and love her as, you know, she is a, a just an incredibly warm and loving person and, and kind and generous and smart and just, you know, emotionally very stable. Um, and yet you as a child really yes. something in you rebelled against her and whatever she was yeah. trying to give you and share with you and help you with um, as a result of, or during or after the divorce from your father, somehow none of that, um, I don't, I, none of that really worked for you at the time. My guess is that some seeds were planted though, and that there was a lot of goodness imparted, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in, in that time that you're now yeah. utilizing but what can you share with listeners about, you know, if they're going through a divorce, if they mm -hmm. are women who are trying to raise children where the dad is either not there or not helpful, um, especially the girls often take it, you know, the hardest right. and push back against their mom. So what can we tell people about that experience from your child perspective when you mm -hmm. were a child? How can we help parents learn from that? So. My, your, my mom was absolutely a therapist and she was working um, at an addiction treatment center actually at the time, but was licensed as a therapist. And, you know, when, when you're going, when you're going through your teenage years, it's, it's completely developmentally normal to reject your parents. There's a, there's a separation that happens and a, no, I got to figure it out for myself. And I was very much that child and I didn't feel 
heard or seen by my mom, even despite all of her training and understanding, because I also was very emotionally sensitive. And so she, as we all do, have our own trauma from the experiences we went through. And she had her own trauma from the divorce that she was still holding on to, her own trauma from her own childhood, right? This, this pattern gets repeated. And she was doing everything she knew to do to try to protect me from that. And from her lens, that means we didn't talk about it. And we didn't talk about the hard things because she was trying to protect me from them. And from my lens, I needed those, that information and I needed to be treated as though I could, I could actually handle it to understand why she made the choices she made that impacted me. And her, in her defense real quick, I think we've changed our perspective on that since then. I think nowadays parents, therapists, I think as a therapist, she would be advising someone in a situation similar to what she was in back then very differently. Now we want to respect the agency and the autonomy and the maturity of our kids. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. Absolutely. And, and back then that, I don't know if that wasn't the recommendation, that wasn't the training, but I didn't feel like I was you know, it was, it, I was, I was trying to be protected from it. But what that meant is the person who told me the details was her abuser. And so the person who gave me the story of what happened was the person who, who abused her. And so it was his version of events and his version painted him as the victim. And so that was the, the only lens I had. And so, and I didn't tell her that he said that I didn't say, Hey, this is what dad said. Is that true? Because I didn't trust her at that point anymore. And that trust, once it was broken, I didn't, I don't think she even knew how to get it back. And it, it, it sent me down a road to have to learn the hard way for myself. What, why, why she made the choices she made, because going through it myself from my lens, I finally got that she was doing the best she could with what she knew. And she was terrified of him and tried to protect us from him. And that's why she kept us away. And boy, did I get that now? Like, you know, and so I got to see my mom's story in my childhood through another lens as well as I was going through it. And I got to understand why she made the choices and have a whole lot more empathy for the choices she made and also recognize what I needed as a child I didn't get from her. And so my what I'm doing with my kids is having those hard conversations is putting blame where it's due, not, not villainizing him, but seeing he had the choice to, to actually maintain parenting time, but he chose not to do anything to get his stuff together to make sure that he could maintain a relationship with you. That was his choice. He knew the consequences of his actions and he made those choices anyway. And so every time they said, why can't we call him or why can't we see him? He made the choice and I needed the blame needs to be placed where it is due, you know, a lot of times we're taught to protect the child and protect the relationship, but that's not teaching children accountability. It's not teaching children to actually trust themselves because the kid knows something is wrong. And you're saying, no, no, everything is fine. While their bodies are feeling that that's not true. And I think it's really important that we help validate the, the really confusing feelings and give them a voice and give them a way to come out and then have those conversations, even though it's going to bring up our stuff and it's not going to be comfortable to talk about. Kids are a lot smarter and more aware than I think a lot of people give them credit for. And yes, yeah, stay age appropriate. You know, I talked about, you know, touching kids in ways that only grownups are allowed to touch other grownups. I didn't, I didn't use words like escorts and, and trafficking. I, I really tried to paint it in a way that a five-year-old can understand but that was the opening the door to the conversation. And as the emotions come up, as the next, the next set of understanding comes up, we have another conversation and we build upon that. And we help them recognize that just because their father was like that, they also, they don't have to be, they don't, that's not their story because they have the awareness and they have more information than, than he did. And so that's I think such it's an important point, I think, because yeah. often, right, especially young men who are who are the children of will, yeah. if it's not very directly addressed, will say, well, I'm a bad seed. I inherited yeah. that. Exactly. And um, I think it's really important for people to recognize that also gets to be a choice just because we were raised by parents who made, you know, bad decisions or decisions we wouldn't make does not mean that we will go on to repeat them unless that we, we choose to go down that path, as long as we have the awareness for why that is. 
and we do the work to, to get on the other side of it because I certainly repeated the patterns of my family until I woke up and saw that, saw that there was a choice and did it differently. And that's, to me, the most empowering thing is to know you always have a choice. You always have a choice to change, to move, to do different things. You always have the choice to keep fighting. Yeah. And I think for parents, especially when marriages start to fall apart, you know, I just, I, I think about your mother and you and how you're both such incredibly smart, loving, open, intelligent people. And your mom had all the training and still that thing kind of went sideways. Yeah, it did. It did. And, you know, my, my experience is different than my sister's. And yet, you know, every kid is going to need their own version of whatever that is. And so I think it's really important that people think about that and they recognize each individual child is going to need a different version of it. And so, you know, as the questions come up, as you know your kids best, you know what they can hear and can't hear. And if it's you that's uncomfortable, that's where you've got to look at yourself. If it's, it's hard because you're uncomfortable to have the conversation, not them, then it's time to look at what's under the surface for you so that you can have that conversation and be that support for your child. Yeah. Speaking of that, I know we went over our hour because we started late and I hear your kids okay. in the background okay. and uh, thank you so much for carrying on. Um, I, I That what you just said is also so important and that is that we need to be curious about who our kids are and we need to see each one individually and yeah. we also, I think pride, parenting pride is a real lethal deal. And if we're not able to show our humanity and, and, and apologize or correct course, um, be humble, know what we don't know, uh, then we can get into a world of hurt. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because like you said, even a very educated therapist, you know, still you know, was having to process her own things. And me, I still have to process mine. I still have to check myself. I still have to go, okay, what is this reflecting back to me? Because, you know, my kids are doing amazing, but there's still challenges. There's still hard stuff. The PTSD still comes up. And I have so many more tools available to me now. I have so much more support. And I always can remember this is this is a lesson and a learning. This is an experience to help teach us something, to help us grow into something else. And everything I believe that happens for us for that. And if I look at it from that lens, then you know it's not it's not bad or hard. It's it's an opportunity, and that's what I how I look at at my experience now. It was an opportunity to really step into into my power, into being the the best mom I can be, into being an advocate for everybody else out there still fighting. I'm so glad that you are who you are. And I'm so glad that you took the time to write this all down in a book, which I'm sure will become an even bigger bestseller than it is now. And I, like I said, can't wait to listen to it. I hope that every listener uh, of this podcast goes to the show notes and looks up the book and gets it as quickly as possible and shares it because uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from you. I can tell with your energy and your uh, entrepreneurial and organizational skills that um, there'll be a lot more coming from you in the future. So we'll all be looking forward to that. Awesome. Any final words, Amanda, before we go? I think my final, final words for everybody is to really make sure that no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it is, trust yourself first, not the system, not what people are saying, but trust your body, trust your intuition, trust your gut, that if something isn't right, keep keep searching, keep digging, keep trying, keep fighting, because we're taught at a very young age to trust teachers and the authority and the systems. And if I had done that, I would be sharing custody with a man who would be continuing to abuse my children. And I instead chose to trust myself and my gut. And I found people to help me with what I decided to, needed to create instead of what they deemed appropriate. And I, I want everybody to know that you can always choose. You can always choose to change and you can always choose to shift. But if you trust you, you will never regret it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been just just a real treat and uh, I'm grateful for your time and we will talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. Bye-bye.
This has been another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about A Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.